Hello, everybody. Welcome. Good evening. And Gemach uh, Simetavis, everybody. The title of this this uh, drasha, the Shabbos Shuvah drasha, is "What is Tshuva?" Getting to the root of the problem. I just read a story about a rabbi who's named Rabbi Michael Paley, who had the following personal experience. Rabbi Paley works for the UJA and the Federation, has held other such positions. I'm not sure exactly where his religious standing is, but Newsweek magazine named him one of the 50 most influential rabbis in America, and I know that I am now on that list. Now, this story that I'm about to say is documented in a few places, the different people he related this to, and some news sources have it. So it seems to be a true story. It was the end of 1998, and President Bill Clinton was, as we all know, going through quite a difficult time at that point, and he had just come very close to being impeached. So Clinton traveled to Cincinnati to have a night with the members of the clergy, and Rabbi Michael Paley was invited to represent the Jewish clergy. Rabbi Paley had something much more important and pressing in mind than a photo op. He wanted to share with the president a meaningful message. So as Clinton passed by and extended his hand, Rabbi Michael shook it and then said directly to the president, it's time for you to do tshuva. So now Rabbi Paley assumed that the president would say, uh, huh, what did you say? And he was about to explain to the president of the United States what the meaning of tshuva is. But then Clinton opened his mouth and said, Rabbi Paley, that's so interesting, but I have a question. When you speak about me doing tshuva, do you mean tshuva from the perspective of Rabbi Soloveitchik? Or do you mean tshuva from the perspective of Rabbi Cook? Which tshuva do you mean? Now, the person who is relaying this story says that as he was talking to Rabbi Paley and I interrupted him and he questions Rabbi Paley and says, "Is this? come on, I mean, you're making this up. So Rabbi Paley said, no, this is 100% true. These were his exact words. So what did you do? He asked him. So Rabbi Paley said, I almost fainted. First of all, I thought to myself, how in the world do you know who Rabbi Salvechik and Rabbi Cook is at all? And second of all, how do you know about the difference between tshuva they described? And third of all, it occurred to me, you may, they may very well know more about tshuva than the majority of American Jews. So now, what, what in fact is the difference between tshuva of Rabbi Salvechik and, and that of Rabbi Cook? And I'll admit, I did not know before reading this article, and I'm happy that I was not the one talking to the president, not that I would have had the nerve to say such a thing, but I, I would have been the Amaretz here. So it turns out that we're familiar with the two approaches, just we don't necessarily call them by that name. What's being referred to as Rabbi Soloveitchik's approach is simply what we know as tshuva, as a mitzvah, as a halacha. Tshuva is learned from the Rambam, and of course the primary components of tshuva are harata, remorse, vidui, confession, and kabbalah al resolving to change your behavior in the future. That's the halachic, the systematic, and the rigorous process of tshuva, which is being referred to as Rabbi Salavechik's approach. It's tshuva. And according to Rav Kook, that is the focus of tshuva is more of the, the chasidish and achshava approach, which is something we've been talking about a lot recently. Based on Baal Shem Tov, the tshuva is returning to the pure version of yourself, discovering that your, your, your essence, your core self, has never been alienated from Hashem. We, we mentioned the Pasuk in Shir Hashirim, Kulach Yafa Rayasi Umumein Bach. You, Kali Yisrael, are beautiful in totality. You don't have any flaws. 
There's no mum. Everyone has a chelak aloikami mal. Everyone has a holy neshama. And in a very, there's always something external, separate from one's essence. And truth is about reclaiming who you always were and discovering the positive core and, and embracing it. So back to our story. President Clinton wished to know which tshuva Rabbi Paley was referring to. So Rabbi Paley uh, luckily did know the difference and responded, Mr. President, of course, the tshuva of Rabbi Cook. To which Clinton responded, that, that's very interesting. Most people I speak to believe I need to do the tshuva of Rabbi Soloveitchik, which, which is true, of course. But Rabbi Paley held his own. He said, no, Mr. President, I feel that you should be doing the tshuva of Rabbi Cook. So Clinton looked back at him and he said, if that's so, we should talk. And after the official meeting with the clergy concluded, Rabbi Paley was asked to a side room by the president, whereupon they spent about 15 minutes conversing privately about how Judaism looks at Tshuva. And I saw a copy of the letter sent to him by the president, which thanks him for teaching him the Pasik, Asher Nasi Yechda, Pasik in Vayikra, that talks about when a king, or a leader in this case, does an Avera, which carbon he brings. And uh, I don't think that the president shechted a goat, but he taught him the concept that there's a special tshuva for a leader. And, you know, still keeping the story in mind, I think that when we approach tshuva, if we want to be effective, if we want our change to stick and hold throughout the year, we do need to incorporate both approaches to tshuva that the president mentioned, both Rabbi Soloveitchik's approach and both Rav Cook's approach. These two approaches are referenced in the famous Haftarah that we just laid on Tem Gedalia, which refers to the Aseris Yimei these ten holy days, it says, in that Haftarah, it says, Yazav Rosh Darkai, V'ishav and Machshavaisav. Step one of Tshuva is change your path, path, and an evil man, Yazav Rosh Darkai, abandon the path you're on, V'ishav and Machshavaisav, change the way, your way of thinking. And that, that's the Tshuva of uh, Rabbi Salavechik, that's changing your path, Kabbalah Asid having remorse. But the second thing the Pasuk says is, Yoshev al-Hashem return to Hashem and He will have mercy. This refers to a person finding Hashem and finding Hashem within Himself, finding His connection to Hashem, the connection that's always there, just has been ignored and allowed to decay. Our connection to Hashem is natural, it's immutable, it's the essence of our neshama, it yearns for Hashem. If we get out of the way, our neshama will automatically return home. So let's develop a combined prescription of both approaches, like a, a one-two, a one-two punch attack in our, our struggles in Avedis Hashem. Let, let's find a way to make a proper Kabbalah, the way Hashem wants us to, the one that addresses the issues and can actually bring about change. Tshuva Rabbi Soloveitchik style. And let's find the proper inspiration to keep these Kabbalahs, Rabbi Cook style, through Dir Hashem, looking and finding our strength through Hashem in our lives every day how to make a Kabbalah, and how to keep it. But in the spirit of Rabbi Paley, let's discuss the tshuva of Rav Kook for a moment. Who are we really? And, and, you know, we face tshuva year after year, and it wears down our self-confidence and our conviction that we can really do this. And we think to ourselves, again, another year of the same struggle? Now, I get this email from a machon in Eretz Yisrael, an organization that sends out different halachic essays. But before Rosh Hashanah, they were visited by Harav HaGoyen Rav Yaakov Meir Shechter Shlita. Rav Yaakov Meir Shechter is, is, I think, what you would call him the Tzaddik Tzaddik. He's, he's a Rosh Hashiva of 
in two uh, two yeshivas in Yerushalayim, and one of the great mashpiim and tzaddikim of the generation. And he's a young man of about 87 years old, and he came and gave some divrei chizuk before Rosh Hashanah. Rav Yaakov Meir told them, and the Rosh Kail, who is Rav Haravagayin Rav Matisio Deutsch, who's a tremendous Talmud Chacham, and he's a big Paisik in his own right. So he told them that he recently had a chiddush. He had a novel thought, and since then he has been sharing it with everyone. And he's doing all that he can in his power to get this chiddush out there. And he asks that the Rosh Kail start mentioning it as well in his drashas, so I guess I'm carrying out Rav Yaakov Meir's wishes as well by, by repeating it. He said that he wants everyone to know that having a Yetzir Hara is not an Avera. Having an evil inclination, having temptation, having that struggle, that itself is not an Avera. It's not a sin. At times, we find ourselves struggling with something and we become despondent and we're ready to give up simply because we can't believe that we are struggling with something like this. We may find ourselves struggling to stay calm or struggling to control an urge to do something that we shouldn't, and we think to ourselves, we lose hope. We say, like, what kind of person am I that I have to struggle like this? Why am I struggling with this kind of thing? How can we be having this struggle year after year? And that makes us lose faith in ourselves. But Rabbi Yaakov Meir, he rails that this is a huge mistake. Having a Yetzirah, having the struggle, is not an Avera. Hashem wants us to have that Yetzirah, or else Hashem would just stick with the Malachim He created. There are plenty of those, many more than there are human beings, and they, they don't have a Yetzirah, but Hashem wants us with our struggle, with the Yetzirah, and the greater Yetzirah, the greater person is, the greater Yetzirah He has. As Chazal say, Kal HaGadol Mechavera Yitzroi Gadol Mimenu. And he says that he told this to Rav Moshe Wolfson Shlita of Borough Park, also a tremendous mashkiach, and Rav Wolfson has let him know that now he mentions it in every drasha he says. And it's a very, very important point to internalize. And the truth is, we say, One of the alchets that we say is that we sinned with the Yetzahara. Now, what exactly does that mean? So I saw Rav Gifters that Sal explains that the Yetzahara in reality is an angel. It's a malach. He serves Hashem. He was entrusted with a very holy job, making Avedis Hashem challenging, so that by overcoming the test, we can be Mikadish Hashem and, and truly be Mikabal Al Malchashemayim and, and, and truly earn the reward that Hashem wants to give us. But instead, we succumb to Him. So that's not achieving His purpose. On the contrary, that ruined His purpose. He wasn't there that we should fail. We sinned with the Yetzirah. We, we used them inappropriately. We dragged them down in the dirt. And that's what Shechter is telling us. Don't allow the fact that we struggle alone drag us down. Struggling is not a Nevera. Struggling is a Vedas Hashem. It's exactly what Hashem wants from us. In addition, even if and when the truth is we fail, we can't allow that to drag us down either. Succeeding and failing is the name of the game here. We're at war with the Yetzirah. It's a Mulchama, Mulchemes HaYetzirah. And in war, battles are won and battles are lost. You can't go to war without thinking that's going to happen. And the main thing is to gain ground. The Yetzirah tries to make us give up, tries to make us be miyuyush, and not recognize that we have accomplished, we have improved, we have gained ground. That's what this war is about. My father-in-law sent me a story about Cheder school in Yerushalayim during World War One, 
when there was a terrible famine in Eretz Yisrael and people were starving to the point where they would pull grass from the cracks and make them into soup. And the Rebbe of this cheder wanted to somehow help these children. So once a month on Rish Chodesh, he arranged somehow for a cake to be baked. And each child got a slice, very thin slice, but a slice of cake. And it was small, but it was cake. And, and gave him something to look forward to. One child decided that why should he take it for himself? And his father is trying so hard and starving. He wanted to save it for his father. So he resolved and he, he wrapped it up and put it in his backpack. By recess, he took it out, only to look, but once he smelled it, he couldn't resist. So he took a bite, took a second bite, and then he caught himself, and he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm saving this for my father. So he puts it back in his backpack. Next recess, same thing, repeats itself. So he gets home, it's about half eaten, and he unwraps it, and he gives it to his father. But he was embarrassed that he had bitten into it, so he was, like, looking down. When he looks up, he sees his father has tears in his eyes, and he says, dear son, specifically from all the bites you took from this cake, I see how much it meant to you. I see how difficult it was for you to save some for me and bring it home to me. Now I know how valuable and precious this gift is from you to me. And this is the way Hashem looks at us as well. When we fall, but we don't give up, and we continue to try, Hashem says, from the fact that you keep on failing and fall, I see how hard it is for you, but yet from that, I see that the times that you didn't, the times you were successful, the times that you did manage to hold back, how precious that is, what a tremendous Avedis Hashem, how much you're serving Hashem. Every Yid who pushes himself to do a mitzvah when it's hard, or holds back from an Avera, from a sin, when he really wants to do it, is create, creating an Ur Godel, a tremendous light in the universe that brings Hashem closer to us, causes Hashem to reveal himself, and brings bracha and blessing throughout the world. We fail, and that has its unfortunate aspects, but every single win counts, and it counts big time. And that's the power and beauty of a Jewish neshama. So now let's turn to Rabbi Soloveitchik's style of tshuva, and let's examine how we should be making Kabbalists, how to do tshuva, and let's understand what it is that Hashem really expects from us, and how we can make it in a way that it'll work. When we say vidui, we go through the Aleph base, right? We say Ashamnu, Bogadnu, Gozalnu. Now, in truth, these aren't really specific sins that we're talking about. These are generalities. They're not really going into a particular Avera. We use the Aleph base, according to many, so that everything should be included. Right? So we say Ashamnu, which means like we destroyed ourselves through sinning. Bogadnu, we betrayed you. Gazalnu is very vague. Go, what, when, where... So we don't really specify. We talk about generalities that we've done. Now, when you think about it, why would we do that? What's the value of making a general statement to Hashem without being specific about what we actually did? You know, think about how people tend to go around and ask, uh, if I did anything to you, are you Michael me, right? So, like, okay, you know, it's the spirit of Yom Kippur, it's nice, but what if the person actually did do something to you, right? What if the person did insult you, did hurt you, and that's all he tells you, oh, in case I did anything to you, you know, can you be Michael me? Will, will that count for anything? Will you, are you even obligated to, for, for, to forgive him? No, he, he didn't ask for Mechila. That's, that's all, it's, and, and on the contrary, it's disrespectful, it's insensitive, it's not sincere. So why would we, when we're trying to ask Hashem for forgiveness, make these generalities, you know, if we did a sin, did any of these sins included in the olive base, we should be saying, listing out whatever we remember. We should be knocking them off and saying, we did this sin, we did that sin. Why are we getting away with such a seemingly insincere vidui? 
But I think the answer lies in the fact that we're not addressing the particulars of Avera at all. We're addressing root causes. That's what we're really talking about here. And this actually is a much more powerful way to ask forgiveness and show remorse. If we go and we're honest about what was the real problem here, what brought us to this sin? And to use an example, imagine someone insulted you with a complete lack of sensitivity and got up in front of a crowd, told a story about you that embarrassed you in front of the whole crowd. Real So the perpetrator, he realizes they did something very bad. So they approach you and they ask for forgiveness. And this is what he, he or she says. He says, I'm so sorry I embarrassed you. I shouldn't have done that. I know I caused you such pain and embarrassment. I'm sorry. I'll not, I won't do it again. Now, okay, it's an apology, but maybe you'll forgive them. I would not. That's not enough for me. But consider this. What if he would say something else? I'm so sorry for what I said. I was insensitive. I was selfish. I realize now that it was a complete lack of awareness of your feelings and your worth as a person and a friend. I see I need to work so hard to improve my respect for you and others. Now that's an apology. And you know why it's an apology? Because the person has started to become honest and he has identified the core failings. He tracked the root of the problem. And admitted honestly his need to improve on those. That's when you truly believe that the person is remorseful and serious about changing and not repeating his sin once again. And this is something we would be much more likely to forgive in our hearts. And that's what we're aiming for in Hashemdu. Sure, we could list our particular averes, and a person should if he can, and we do that to some extent in Al-Khait. But much more importantly, what we're doing is we're admitting our core issues, what really is wrong and needs to be mended. Ashamnu isn't a particular Avera. It's a description of what the Avera has done to us. If we're going to say Ashamnu with any kind of sincerity, we need to examine ourselves and admit, wow, being nasty to that person really affected my character. It made me that much more selfish and uncaring. Ashamnu, I've lost a piece of myself. We acknowledge and realize how much we're missing within ourselves, how much this Avera has taught us about ourselves, our mitos, our characteristics, our values. We know who we are and what we need to change, and that's something Hashem wants to hear. When we say gazalnu, we aren't limiting our confession to stealing. Perhaps we haven't stolen a cent from anyone this year, but stealing has many definitions and applications. We spoke this year about Geneva's death, so deceiving someone and making you, them think you've done a favor for them when you haven't. And the root cause of this kind of sin is gazala, which means not that we stole, but we're stealers. We're okay with taking something which isn't ours. And it's a lack of respect for other people's possessions and their right to know the truth. And that's being honest with ourselves and looking for the root cause. So when we're doing tshuva and we're trying to make a Kabbalah and we hope that the Kabbalah will achieve something, understanding what the real underlying issue is, is key. I was speaking to my son, Mayor, in yeshiva, and I was trying to explain this concept to him. So I said, listen, imagine a bachar. Yeshiva bachar has a problem. What kind of problem would a yeshiva bachar have? He wastes a lot of time. He battles. He, he's learning, and uh, somehow they start talking about the most important things in the world, 
And before they turn around, half of the Seder is gone. So it keeps it happening. So you know what he says? What, what kind of Kabbalah will that person make? He'll say, you know what? I'm not going to battle anyone. I'm not going to waste time. I'm not going to talk the first five minutes. These kind of Kabbalahs, which we all know, they're, they're beautiful, but they have a high rate of failure. But what if he, this Barker would start giving it some thought? And he'd say, you know, what is the reason why I'm constantly talking? It's, you know what it is? It's because I'm not really learning with a lot of energy. I'm kind of half asleep when I'm learning, and therefore it's painful, it's rigorous. And, and uh, therefore I, I opt for the easy route to schmooze. You know, that's the problem. So let's go a step further. Why are you so half asleep when you're learning? Very simple, because you don't sleep enough at night. Why don't you sleep enough at night? Because you hang around and waste time. That's laziness. So the root problem isn't the lack of kavodah taira, the lack of appreciating learning. The root problem is laziness. And you know where the Kabbalah will have to be to help? To go to sleep on time, to go to sleep earlier. So it's so important to understand where the problem begins. And then you can make a Kabbalah that can actually help. Rabbi Reisman writes that before we say vidui, we say, we're not brazen, we're not and, and, and stubborn, and we don't say, we haven't done a sin. Now, who would say a thing like that? We know we've done sins, but he says, that's not what this means. It means that a person says, he talks about his sins, but he doesn't even start to think about the root causes, what brought him to these sins. He's equivalent to like he's saying, he's ignoring the real issue. It's as if he's saying, I'm a tzaddik, and I haven't done anything wrong. Another example, you know, how we could really relate to this concept. Your son, your daughter, they want to borrow an expensive item from you. Maybe your car, your lawnmower, whatever. So you don't want to just give it to them. You want to give them some tips, how to take care of it, how careful they should be, what they should do to make sure it doesn't get ruined. And you start talking about it, and they're too smart for that. So they say, okay, okay, yeah, 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 just let me go already. Whatever, whatever, I know. They don't hear a word you say. So they go, and of course they ruin or, or lose or crash the expensive item. They're careless, negligent. So we'll get angry at them. We'll yell at them. But what are we going to say? We're not going to talk about the negligence and the carelessness. That's not the point. We're going to say, why couldn't you just listen to me for once? If you could have just swallowed your pride for a minute, this would have never happened. Yeah, I could have told you how to avoid this. So the problem wasn't carelessness or negligence. The root problem was pride, gaiva, and that's directly where we would go. And if we're smart enough to recognize that with everybody around us, so let's turn our eyes inwards, as uncomfortable as that is, and let's think how many issues, disagreements, frictions arise simply because we are too proud, too proud to admit a mistake, too proud to listen to, you know, some kind of constructive criticism. So, you know, we think, you know, we're getting into arguments, we have these disagreements, so I think the Kabbalah we should make is we'll hold our tongue, right, in the argument. That's way too late. That's after the fact. The Kabbalah has to be much earlier than that. When you feel you're engaging in a conversation, it's getting heated, temperature is rising, you see yourself getting upset, tell the other person, wait a minute, I need to think. And start thinking, why am I getting so angry and defensive? Is it because I don't want to admit a mistake? Is it because I'm taking something as a personal attack? That minute of thought, it'll change our lives. A Kabbalah will address the root problem it's not the fighting that's the problem. It's why we're fighting. It's what root character trait is causing us to do that. So step one of making the proper Kabbalah is the identifying honestly what is the real issue, the real flaw. That's where the Kabbalah has to be. There's another angle to identifying root causes, which 
I feel we tend to overlook, but this would help us in a way more than anything else. Chazal explained the Pasuk, People bring sin upon themselves with worthless, cheap strings, but then their, their sin turns into ropes, cables that are used to bind a cow or to bind a, a wagon. So Chazal explains, this refers to the Yitzhahara. Initially, he tricks us with things that are so simple to resist, easy as breaking a spider web. How easy is it to break a spider web? It takes less than zero effort. Walk through it. It'll break. But after we get reeled in and bound up in sin, it turns into the heavy cables used to tie down a huge animal or the carted poles. That's very hard to crawl out of. There's a quote that sums this up. I'm not clear who said this. The chains of habit are too light to be felt until they're too heavy to be broken. So that being said, there are many things which we try to tackle and fail. But the real root issue is that we aren't stopping ourselves much earlier when it's easy and it counts. Now everybody knows when you're trying to diet, you don't buy candy and cake. It's much simpler to refrain in the store and not buy than it is to hold yourself back when you're craving something sweet at 2 a.m. and it's in the cabinet. And you know what? It's not only yeshiva bacharim that need more sleep. If we're struggling with being kind and patient and we'd like to be better, maybe we're tired, we're hangry, we're angry, we're impatient, and it's simply we need to get more sleep. And it might involve rethinking our schedule. And the real Yitzhahara to deal with is that laziness that comes from just wasting time before you go to sleep and the spirit of chilling out. And it might seem strange to make a Kabbalah for Yom Kippur, such a mundane thing, like just to sleep more. But one of the greatest Balei Musa went to visit his son in Yeshiva, and he didn't speak to the Mashgiach how his son is doing. He didn't consult with the Rebbe or the Rosh Yeshiva. He simply went to the boy's room and checked his drawers. He saw that they were neat, and he was assured that his son is doing okay. Simple aspects of our life can have such a tremendous impact and import, and perhaps can be the most important and life-changing cabals we can make. If someone is struggling with the Internet, whether it's them spending too much time surfing, shopping, reading, or it's darker than that, and the person is ending up where they don't want to be. So you can try to fight that in two ways. You can make all kinds of cabals about using the Internet, you know, stopping yourself in the middle, but that's the fighting the habit after it's already developed into a chain. Or there are things to do way earlier, installing a filter, making blackout times, getting web cover, placing your computer in a public place. And you can even deep, dig deeper. Sometimes, you know, we find ourselves, it's easy to resist their various temptations, and then sometimes it becomes too difficult. And what happens? You know what happens? If we're not careful about what we look, what we see, what we hear, what we listen to, and what we read, it has a huge effect. It creates a handhold for the Yetzirahara. Without some form of shmiras and naim, of protecting ourselves from the things that, that are kind of trying to get in, the things to see, read, and, and, and hear, it's, it's very easy for the Yetzirahara to weave that into a cable that binds us, wherever he wants us to go. If we aren't careful about it, it creates temptation, and eventually we're going to lose. And it's so much easier to prevent it at that point. Don't look. Don't watch, don't read, and that'll help make it so much easier down the road. We want to improve our own bias, our wives, our spouses, our husbands, children, parents, whoever. What's the root of the issue? Why is it that we might have these disagreements and fights? 
sometimes it's just a little thing that we need to alter so that it doesn't start to escalate in the first place. Sometimes it's just about starting off the day right, with the right good morning, making a phone call, finding out how your significant other is doing, and giving a compliment once in a while, paying attention, acknowledging each other, and little things, not difficult to do, which don't require huge self-control, but they will have such a tremendous effect and change the nature of the resulting conversation. The value of complimenting and the emotional need every single person in the world has to be recognized and, can, and appreciated can't be underestimated. I, I read a story, a fellow named Levi Geldman. He was living at Israel, standing in his lobby of his building in Beit Shemesh. And he was overheard, this, kind of, this gardener, whose name was Yonatan. And this guy was making a number of phone calls, and this fellow was clearly trying to drum up some business. So he was making cold calls to building managers, and he was doing one after another, offering his services. He sold himself as an experienced landscaper. He creates works of art with hedges and flowers. Next one, the guy says, no, no, not interested. Calls the next guy, and he says, oh, you know, I go after weeds, like hummus and Pesach. There's nothing left when I'm there. Again, gets turned down time after time. He made about 15 calls with this result. So Levy is hearing this, and he feels terrible for this luckless gardener. So when he's finished, Levy approached him, and he says, I couldn't help overhearing that you're a gardener. Maybe you'd be interested in doing work on my building. I'm, I'm the building manager, and uh, we could use a gardener. So Yonatan smiles, and he thanks Levy for being so kind. And he says, you know, actually, I have, I have no time. I do work on about 15 buildings. I can't take on any new clients. But I appreciate your offer. So, you know, Levy was confused. Like, maybe he thought, you know, maybe Yonatan just like playing the pride card, didn't want to seem so needy. Yonatan saw that he was confused, so he continued. He said, let me explain. You, you heard these phone calls I was making? You heard these phone calls I was making. I, I was actually, I was calling my existent, my existing clients. You see, I do wonderful work for them, and I get their business, but I never get any feedback. I don't get a single compliment, never. So in order to get some positive feedback, I call posing as someone else offering gardening services, and they refuse, and they tell me, no, 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 we're very happy with our gardener. Oh, so now I feel good. They're talking about me. And it's nice to be complimented for your work. That's, that's the length a person will go to be recognized. And let's not kid ourselves. We all feel the same way. It's a powerful need. And it's a powerful thing to do in any relationship. <clears throat> so it's so important when identifying what kind of Kabbalah we want to make, where the Kabbalah should be, First, identify what's the root cause, what's really causing us to do what we do, what's the characteristic behind it. And that will help us understand what we need to do, what cabal we have to make to prevent it, and also let's pay attention to what simple things can be done way in advance. Catch it before it becomes a problem. Stop it before it develops into a habit, before it develops into a cable, and that way we can make a cabal that we can keep and a cabal that will really help. So that's Chuva from Rabbi Soloveitchik's approach. Now let's look into Rabbi Cook's approach. The approach of finding Hashem, Dirushu Hashem, is integral to any kind of Chuva. If we look for Hashem when He's near and we find Him, we can make sure we don't lose Him again so quickly. We need motivation to change, and it involves being conscious and caring about what we do and realizing we're becoming close to Hashem with every act. So what gives us that inspiration? What will help us keep these Kabbalists so, so that we 
you know, appreciate the, the Kedusha that we have within ourselves, the closeness we have to Hashem. How can we make ourselves more aware of Hashem and feel His presence more? So I want to suggest three possible ways. Number one, looking for Hashkacha Pratis in our lives. Looking for Hashkacha Pratis. Now, my wife, my wife's class started this kind of diary where they record when Hashkacha Pratis happens to them. They call it HP moments. This was inspired by Rabbi Mintz of, uh, of Ura. Hashkacha Pratis moments. This is a very powerful tool. Once you start looking for Hashem, we'll see He Matzai, we'll see He's here all the time. So here's some examples of their entries. I was going to my grandparents, and I happened to get off at an earlier stop, so I could get there earlier. And as I walked in the door, my grandmother needed help getting something out of the oven, and she would have needed to wake up my grandfather if I hadn't just gotten there. Shkacha Pratis. Another one, I was making pancakes and I put the stove on high because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. And my mom called me just then, just as I put a pancake on the stove, and I double-checked her and she told me to lower it to medium. And if she hadn't called just then, I would have burnt the pancakes. Hashkacha process. Another one, I went to school and I, I ended up forgetting my lunch. And that day, it turns out my sister was coming to school late. So she ended up bringing up with her an HP moment. We smile at this, but that's what we believe, that Hashem is involved, that detail-oriented in our lives. And he arranged that the pancakes shouldn't get burnt, and he arranged that this girl should get her lunch. And that's Ashkach HaPratis. I can't tell you how many times I'm preparing a speech, and by chance, I come across a story which fits perfectly. It makes my speech, and you might think I have a huge repertoire of stories. I don't. Nothing could be further from the truth. Ask me to tell you a story about a topic, I'll draw a blank. And more times than I can remember, the story was just served up to me on a platter. My daughter just read it and shared it, or I chanced upon it when looking for something else. And it's an HP moment. Hashem's really helping me. There's such a power in recognizing these moments where Hashem is helping us. When we fail at our Kabbalahs, or we fail in Avedis Hashem, we get into our head, uh, you know, Hashem must be losing patience with me. By now, he has definitely lost interest in me. And this is an obvious tactic of the Yitzhah but a, a successful one. And as soon as things get... As soon as things get good, you know, when we, and we, we take note of Hashem making things work in our lives, that's Hashkach HaPratis, and we see he wants to help us. He hasn't lost patience with us. He's still on our side. This is so important for our own chizuk and inspiration. Number two, making betachin a reality. You know, we were just talking about when everything works, the times that things work. This is for the times that things don't work. And then you take that moment and things are not working and you, it's an opportunity for betachin to realize Hashem is running the world. And Bittachan is such a powerful thing in serving Hashem. And it was, I had a real eye-opener this year. I was learning a Sefer Chedusha Halev, and in Parshas Pinchas, he's explaining something Rabbeinu Bechayas says there. On famous Pasuk, Kaybe Hashem Yachlifu Kayach, the people who serve Hashem, 
they'll get stronger. Yalu Sharam, they'll fly like an eagle, they won't get tired, Yelchu, they'll travel Layoff where they won't lose strength. So he explains, Kaive Hashem, if we trust in Hashem, if we have Bitachin, that Hashem will give us the power, the energy and the ability to accomplish our job and win our battles, then we'll be Yachlifu Kayak, meaning we'll receive strength from Hashem and Yarutsuvuloyigo will be able to run because we won't give up because we'll have the confidence to continue. We'll have the hope if we trust in Hashem, if we only have bitachen. And this is a real eye-opener for me. We try to improve ourselves, our midas, and this time of year, we have an issue. It's hard for us to believe that we can. We've tried many times, and we don't think we've been successful, and this erodes our self-confidence. It makes us lose motivation to even try. We don't believe in ourselves. And the answer is, bitachen is where to turn Hashem wants us to change so, so much. We say numerous times on Yom Kippur, Ad Yom Meisei Mechakalei, who waits for us till our last day. He doesn't sit around and do nothing. He throws all the siyata deshmaya that we need and will help us. And we know this. We know it in our minds. But if we feel it in our hearts, it'll energize us. It'll give us hope and confidence. And then we won't give up. He brings a beautiful example based on Ramban. How Yecheved, Moshe's mother, only saved Moshe because she saw the house filled with light when he was born. That gave her hope. And Betachen, to trust Hashem, that will help her. And once she had that, she thought of all different ways to save him. But without that Betachen, she wouldn't have even tried. So how do we work on Betachen? So I heard this, this suggestion from Charlie Harari. Great suggestion. During the course of the day, when things are going wrong, Take a couple of those times and verbalize, Hashem, I know you're in charge. You have this. You got this. You came home. Your kids are bonkers. They're unusually crazy. So before you kill them, turn to Hashem and say, I trust you, Hashem. Things go wrong at work. You get there late. You're stuck in traffic. Your boss gets angry. You lose a client. Whatever happens, grab the moment and say, Hashem, I know you have a plan. And the more we reinforce the knowledge that Hashem is dear for us always and is working for us only, the more courage and power we will have to keep on trying. That will give us the inspiration and motivation to keep our Kabbalahs, Adut Shuvashlami. Sometimes we get lucky and Hashem gives us a boost. He lets us actually see how He is manipulating everything for our good. I saw this story about a fellow who lives in Israel. His name is Doron. So he lives in Be'er Sheva, but his parents live in Yerushalayim. He would make an effort once a month, at least, to visit them. And it's about an hour and a half, I think, from Be'er Sheva. But he knew how important these visits were for his, his parents. So one such time, the drive was particularly difficult. The weather was bad, and the traffic was even worse. When he got there, there was no place to park. So he circles and circles. Finally, he, finally, he parks in a, what he thought was a semi-legal spot, but of course was an illegal spot, hoping he wouldn't get ticketed. It's only a short time. Goes beautiful visit with his parents. He's so appreciative that he's there. He so, feels so good about himself. Goes back to his car. Sure enough, there's an officer writing out a ticket. He pleads with the cop. He tells him all the wonderful things he did, how much mysterious nefesh he had to come here. The officer turns a deaf ear. He says, listen, buddy, you parked in an illegal spot. He gives him the ticket. On his way home. So Doron starts having thoughts like, this trip just became expensive. I was doing a mitzvah. Why would I have gotten a ticket? But things only got worse. Doran gets home, and he has a neighbor who is not well mentally and constantly harassing him and his family. And as he's walking into his apartment, the man accosts him, is lying in wait, and he tells him, you 
broke into my apartment today and stole my merchandise. So Doron actually had the best alibi. He had ironclad alibi. I wasn't even near Shalim all day. I was in Beersheba. But the man got even more furious and enraged, and he called the police. Police came. It wasn't the first time, but they made a report. They filed a complaint, and they set a court date. So now he was really, Doron was really troubled. So he had a friend go into Rav Chaim Kanievsky, Shlita, and ask him, what's the rationale behind so much trouble happening just as I'm doing a mitzvah of Kibbutz Vaim? So Rav Chaim just told him, don't worry, it's all for your good. Now, Doron was perplexed how this could be possible, but he accepted the answer, hoping to understand it one day. The day of the court case arrives. And then Doron's neighbor gets up on the stand, not only presses charges for the theft, he began to unload a ton of grievances, everything that he had been harassing them about from, you know, Sheshus Yemei Breshus. Although they were all fraudulent claims, they just, like, the way he was heaping them on, the court was believing them, and it just really wasn't looking good. So finally, he gets to the claim of theft. So there, Doron says, you know, I have this one, I, I was out of town. But the judge asks, Doron, do you have any proof that you were out of town that day? So at first he was like flustered, how am I going to prove it? But then he remembered, he has a proof. He has a parking ticket. So he pulls out the parking ticket and he shows it to the judge. So the judge says, okay, okay, your car was in Beisheva, but uh, how do I know you were? It's a parking ticket. Maybe someone else was. Who says Doron was driving? So Doron remembered that the ticketing officer, he argued with him, he probably remembers him. So they called the policeman, and sure enough, the cop testified that Doron had been in Beersheba. And at that point, it became clear to the judge that that charge was a falsified charge, and he started examining it again, and he saw that all the charges were trumped-up charges. And not only was the case dismissed, the neighbor was fined 50,000 shekel for harassment. So Doron not only didn't lose from the ticket, he actually came out ahead. So sometimes Hashem does that for us, just to help us give a little chizik and bitachin to realize Hashem has, has a plan. He's got this, and it's all working for us. And we have to use those moments to be mechazik ourselves. The third Kabbalah, a beautiful Kabbalah, to bring Hashem into our lives, is making brachas out loud. Going back to Rav Yaakov Meir Shechter, Shlita, that we started with, after he finished his drasha there in that kalal, they asked him for a good idea for a Kabbalah. So he tells them that his suggestion always is, make brachas out loud. This brings bracha, it brings blessing to the whole house, and it instills a muna within us. He testified that many people started to do this and saw great Yeshua's, great Hashem's help from this segula. And this is such a beautiful Kabbalah. Let's think about this for a minute. We make brachas often throughout the day. And there's a tendency... Uh, to swallow a bracha. We mumble it quickly as the food is 50% in our mouth already. If we make a bracha loudly, it'll be said clearly, it'll be said properly, and it'll begin to resonate. And I don't know if we can do this with every bracha. Let's start somewhere. Pick a specific bracha or two that you can do this easily and start. Enjoy it. Make that bracha rock the house. And we can start adding one by one. And these brachas will bring Hashem down from up there in Shemayim and place Him squarely in front of our eyes, in our kitchen, in our office, in our bedroom, wherever we're making these brachas. And that's such a powerful chizah. And there's a side benefit, as Rav Yaakov Meir testifies, that we get Yeshua's out of it. And who doesn't need those? 
So the three Kabbalists that we can make to strengthen ourselves is start counting those HP moments when Hashem helps us. And in the other moments when things are difficult, verbalize some bitachin Hashem, you're here, I know you have a plan, and make some brachas out loud. And that will bring Hashem into our lives and realize that we have the power, we have the hope, we have the ability to be successful in our struggle in Avedis Hashem. Realize that struggling is not an Avera. Struggling is not a Yetzahara. It's okay, and it's what Hashem wants. And if we fail, that's part of the battle. Pick ourselves up and keep on going, and that demonstrates to Hashem how much we love Him. And remember to examine ourselves, try to understand what the root cause of what we do, why we do, what characteristic is behind it, and try to address that in our Kabbalists and think also, what little thing can we do way before things begin to become difficult, till before they get heated, before it's difficult, find that little Kabbalah to make way beyond before that so that it helps us so much earlier when things are easy and we'll make the right Kabbalah and we'll have the motivation to keep it. So let me conclude with something the Bayana Rebbe said, said to people around him by Tashluch, that the whole year, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is our relative. As we say in Ashrei, Korav Hashem, L'chol Korav. Hashem is Korav. He's our, our relative, so to speak. But he says during the Aserah Tzimei Tshuva, he's our double relative. Kiruhu B'yoisei Korav. Hashem is doubly close to us. It's like you're related in two ways to, to someone, through your wife and through your, yourself, your father, through your mother. Hashem is so close to us now. Let's grab this opportunity to do tshuva properly, find Hashem within ourselves, recreate our relationship with Hashem. And with that, we should all be zeicha to do tshuva shalema and be zeicha to gemar chasima taiva and a year full of blessing, of bracha, of Yeshua and nechama. Have a good night.